Leah Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast series. This program, featuring stories about the origins of no-till farming by Frank Lesseter, is sponsored by Ingersoll and Agri Solutions. For more information about Ingersoll, visit them at www.ingersolltillage.com. That's I-N-G-E-R-S-O-L-L-T-I-L-L-A-G-E.com. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. In this episode, Frank Lesseter, founding editor of No-Till Farmer, chats with no-tiller John Ashelman from Colfax, Washington. John shares stories about what it's like to raise crops on the steep slopes of the Palouse area of southeastern Washington, including raising 165 bushel wheat, how he learned about the Green Bridge and the life cycle of plant pathogens with Dr. James Cook, why his yielder drill came to be nicknamed Old Yeller, and more. So today we're going to talk with John Ashelman from Colfax, Washington. This is in the middle of the Palouse area where they got steep slopes. This would be the southeastern corner of Washington across the border in Idaho and Oregon. So welcome, John. Tell us, when did you first start no-tilling? We started in the mid-70s, about that time. So we talk about slopes back here in the Midwest. I mean, I've been on bus tours where they were talking about a 1% slope. What kind of slopes have you got? Well, quite a bit more than 1%. It varies lots and lots of 25-30% slope, but we have some exceptionally steep ground in our area right there in the Palouse. We run up to like 60% and people don't believe that, but it really is. It's percent now, not degrees, it's percent. And so yes, it is pretty steep and we have uh, some self-leveling wheel tractors that we use. We use quad track and and we've used crawlers our whole life. We've never had used uh, wheel tractors until till later, you know, in the 90s. Uh, we got into wheel tractors. So you got self-leveling combines, right? Yes. Tell our audience what a self-leveling combine is. Some may not know. Okay, a self-leveling combine is it has hydraulic cylinders on each wheel. And what happens is when you go on a side hill, it has a sensor that tells it where level is. It's like a pendulum. And as you go up steeper and steeper, where the pendulum keeps keeping it centered, and so it stays actually level. But the the older ones uh, back in the 80s used to level 47 percent, and now they only level 27 percent. So they still level a little bit. But when you go on a 60 percent slope, you're still leaning. But they're very wide. People worry about them tipping over. I in my lifetime only remember one or two that ever tipped over, and I don't remember anybody getting killed on one. But you just grow up on them and you learn to respect them. So if you're buying a new combine, the self-leveling would add, what, $40,000 or more than that? Oh, I don't know. I, I think more. More? Probably like 60 or 80. I'm, I'm, okay. I haven't heard a number recently, but they're quite sophisticated. And, they're, and of course, the combines are very large now. You know, you take a 9230 or 9340 or, you know, some of they're really big uh, class 10 combines. And so the leveling on them are really heavy. And... Um, they got to work because it's big trouble if you don't. <laughs> I've been on your farm and I've been I've walked up some of those slopes and I thought I was going up Mount Rainier or someplace. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> pretty steep. What crops do you raise? My grandfather came in 1883, homesteaded, and um, they didn't intend to farm the whole hill. My dad told me he said they just kind of started out in the bottoms and then walking plows. You know, he did that, 
And he said every year they just went a couple rounds higher <laughs> and pretty soon they were on top of the hill. We raised summer fall of wheat rotation. So, you know, recropping was kind of unheard of until in the mid, uh, say mid 50s. And then they started putting in peas with the advent of dwarf wheat and uh, introducing commercial fertilizer. Then they started, we started raising uh, a lot more crops. And so we raised uh, winter peas, but now we raise peas and lentils and garbanzos. Uh, we've introduced uh, canola, winter canola, spring canola. We've introduced corn, which we don't raise in, the, in our area. The closest cornfield to me is like 100 miles away. It's all under irrigation in the state of Washington because it's all dry land. But we raise it and we do quite well with it. We raise fairly every year, 150 to 160 uh, bushel sea acre in, a, in dry land, non-irrigated. We have uh, yield monitors that show us we're over 200 in some areas. So uh, and then we also do sunflowers. We've introduced sunflowers in the last. There's just some alternative crops of the extra water is just open new fields for us to be able to raise other crops. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you got land down by the river. Yes. And then how, yeah, how, there's, what there, would the elevation be on your farm? Well, the elevation are where, where I am is uh, on the hill is uh, about 23, 2400. Uh, in the valleys, it can be 20, uh, 2000, 2100. Uh, Snake River would be 600 feet. So our land down by the snake would be, um, would probably be around, I'm, I'm guessing probably 1800, 1700 feet. Uh, our rainfall, we have three distinct rainfall areas. We have in the lower areas, it's, it's 10 to 13, well, 11 to 13, I guess you'd call it. Inches per inches year. Inches per, yes, inches per year. And then in the mid area, it's uh, 15 to 18. And then where we live, it's, it's uh, 18 to 20. And we raise corn, we raise all the corn basically in our area, but we've done it in the 15 to 18 also, uh, man, you know, and it works. And in the lower rainfall area, that was all summer fall wheat rotation every year. And I saw, you know, once in a while they'd, they'd raise some spring wheat or something, but they never, uh, in that area when we bought this land about 92, there wasn't hardly anybody uh, recropping. But we've, since that time, uh, told us when we bought it, you know, we can't recrop down here. And I said, yeah, yeah I know, but nobody no-tills. So they, they, you know, that opens a whole new field. And so now we're raising, we're recropping down there now, raising really good spring wheat, 60 bushel uh, uh, spring wheat. We're raising canola, uh, 2,000, 2,100 pounds spring canola. And we're, re and we're recropping winter wheat back on, on canola ground now. So, I mean, it's all unheard of. They kind of look over the fence and say, what's he doing? <laughs> you know, what's he doing? And we, we also raise tillage radish in our winter wheat down there. So that's pretty exciting. So a term that a lot of Midwesterners won't be familiar with is recropping. Yes. Can you define it? Oh, that, yes. Recrop is when you annual crop uh, down there because it was a summer fall of wheat rotation. You would half of it in summer fall, half of it in conventional summer fall, and half of it in wheat. And then the next year they reverse it. Gotcha. Uh, so when we recrop, that means you raise, uh, two, you have a crop every year. Uh, you you will put in spring canola. We'll go back with winter wheat on it. We'll put in uh, spring garbanzos. We'll go back with winter wheat, and uh, like that. And we'll go spring wheat, winter wheat. There's a whole bunch of different rotations. Corn, winter wheat. Uh, there's a lot of rotations that we can do. So, but most of the people doing this. Are no-till is a big benefit to doing this? Oh yeah, I mean, no, in our area, in the higher rainfall area, 
as you get towards the Idaho border, Moscow, Idaho, Pullman, Washington, Pullman is, on, is close to the Idaho border. Uh, they get more rainfall, they get 22, 23 inches there. So they can raise an annual crop of uh, peas or, or lentils or garbanzos, and there's quite a bit of that uh, going on. That's been going on since probably the 60s. Well, actually a little bit before that. But down in the low rainfall, you know, down by the river in that um, 11 to 13, uh, very, very little spring cropping going on there. But they're, they're starting to as, as uh, well, I give the fact that we can even raise corn, I give that to the, just to, to the fact that it's direct seeded. You know, it's no-till. I mean, we just have more water. Yeah. Uh, water used to run everywhere in the spring with spring thaw, the water be running around the house and down the road and you know, be running for the bus, you know, and ankle deep mud and water around the house when I was a kid. It's unheard of now. We just, since we've direct seeded no-tilled, it's been, uh, you know, there just isn't any more ditches, hardly. There's just nothing. So we've, we're accumulating more water and our soils are deep there. We have really deep soils. And so the water just goes in and it sits there, and I've, I've got a Giddings probe, I do a lot of tours and things, and we have a Giddings prep probe that we um, demonstrate with, and I'll back it right into a cornfield or into some 100 bushel winter wheat, and I'll pull out the first five feet, and it's all dry because the winter wheat, this would be like at harvest time or just before, sure. and the winter wheat has sucked all the water out to make the wheat. Uh, but I'll pull the second core out, which the second five foot in the same hole, and it'll just be mud. I mean, you just, mm. it's just wow. a mud ball. So our soils are deep. I mean, 10 feet is nothing. You know, we've got three or 400 feet of lust soil. And so it stores it. And then I've watched it. I've checked it all winter. And as soon as it's thawed or something, I'll go out with my probe and, and check it. And sure enough, here it comes. It works from the five to four to three. And pretty soon about, oh, probably by the middle of February, it's meeting. The rain's coming in and the stuff's coming up from the bottom and it's met. So we've got a full profile, you know, to start out with spring, which is just was unheard of before. We live in Wisconsin. Average rainfall for us would be about uh, 30 inches a year. You'd love that, wouldn't you? Well, during the summer, it was really dry. You know, you guys in the Midwest here, they get, you know, you get all your water in the summer. We get nothing in the summer. It shuts off about, in our area, it'll shut off about, uh, the last week of June. We used to think we got an inch and a half of water in June. We've, it was amazing, you know, we just, if we got a June rain, we called it a million dollar rain. Of course, if the guys were making the conventional summer fall and that half inch or an inch of rain, it would just gut the fields. It just, because they're steep. Mm -hmm. And the water all end up in the ditch and the county would spend a million and a half bucks a year, still do, I think, cleaning out ditches, regraveling roads. That's all gone when you start direct seeding. It's, it's just gone, and that water goes in the ground. <laughs> but, but I've seen uh, pictures taken in the last couple of years where guys are still using conventional tillage and yes. mineral tillage, and the road commission is scraping dirt off the roads? That's correct. Yeah, they're just, it's crazy. I mean, we've still, I've still got neighbors that farm that way, and it's just, it, it's something that I think it's just uh, the older ones, when the younger ones take over, a lot of them are changing, but the, the old farmers are, they're used, I mean, we used to farm that way. My dad farmed uh, that way. There was no other way to farm until we, until we figured it out. And uh, when we started no-tilling, it was such a thing, everybody looked at us and said, well, you guys are crazy. That's yeah. never gonna work. 
you know, we had drills, the yielder drills, great big huge things, you know, before that it was Comfort King and, and uh, but it's just, we just kept, stayed with it, no Roundup, no nothing, you know, and, and so we just stayed with it and, and, until it worked. So you uh, farm with your son, Corey, how many acres did the two of you run? We run around 4,000. We started, my, my, my grandfather settled on 320 and then my dad, he had seven boys and my dad was the youngest. He ended up with a home place. My grandfather, before he was 85, well, he died before I was, I was about one year old. I never got to know him. I wish I could have, because <laughs> anyway, but he got all his boys started. And today there's only two of us. There's one cousin and myself are the only ones left out of those seven boys that are still mm -hmm. farming. Corey has, uh, in that 4,000, he has some leases. I lease him some of my ground and he basically uh, runs the operation. Uh, now I still do. I still love all of it. Yeah. It's uh, it's just a love that I have, and I get to, you know, I run combine, I drive semis, all that stuff. And uh, but he basically is. We work together on rotations and and work together on all uh, stuff and share equipment and share hired men and all that. So that works good. So go, going back to the '70s, what made <clears throat> you get excited about no-till? Well. Is all that mud running everywhere, <laughs> all the water running everywhere. I just, uh, my dad was still farming when I, I got started pretty young, got married young, got into, got going on my own and I ended up, I left the farm for about uh, 18 years or so because my dad was still farming. And then <clears throat> when he quit farming, then I went ahead, it was a small place and I kind of did it on weekends. And I had a manufacturing company, did a bunch of other stuff, had 40 employees. And, and then in about 75, I went back to the farm. My kids were hitting high school. And um, when I came back, and I was watching this all the time, and uh, the guys, some of the guys in our local area, that you know, the Mort Swanson, they were messing around with this stuff, and I kind of got with them. This mud and water running all around the house every spring, filling up the root cellar. You know, it's just terrible. And I thought, this is not sustainable. How long can this go before we're out of soil? You know, sure we got a lot of soil, but the black stuff is on top, and that's all gone. It's going away. And moveboard plow, you know, fence rows going 20, 30 feet in the air from the guy plowing down to the fence above, and the guy plowing away from the fence on the bottom, and the fence just goes up in the air. And work, how long can that, is that sustainable? So, just got with these guys, and we started figuring stuff out, and um, there was no glyphosate yet or anything. And so it was just shoot from the hip, trial and error, just stay with it, rebuild the drill. You know, we used to say that, there's an old saying among us guys that started way back there, because everybody said we were crazy. Uh, it was just a saying, you know, a, a, a true no-teller is a guy that puts his drill in the shop every winter and rebuilds it. <laughs> he improves it, you know, right, he just exactly. keeps, keeps doing it. That didn't work, we'll try something else. Yeah. And you can't do it during the season because you've got too many acres right. to get over. So that's, that's what drove us. It was the erosion, the mud, all that stuff. Losing all that water. When the water leaves, it takes the soil and it takes your fertilizer. And if it's seeded, it takes your seed. It's just, it's, it's insane. So that's what drove us to do it. And we just stayed with it until, uh, you know, some of us went a little farther. There's anybody else raises corn and some of these things we raise because, you know, raising wheat is simple anymore. That's all figured out. But some of these new ones, we can use them in a rotation. You know, healthy soil is, is because you have, um, <clears throat> you know, you have all these rotations of crops uh, and your soil, there's more going on under the ground than there is going on top. And the, the soil life and the, 
you know, cover crops and everything that will produce that soil life is that's where it's at. You need to know. We know that. We know more about the surface of the moon than we know about the first two inches of soil in our field sometimes, right. and that's that's ridiculous. We need to know what all those guys are doing, and some of these researchers are just digging into that. You know, and we're all just working at it to figure out the new crops that we can raise and and what they all do. You know, the so um, yeah, it's an exciting time to live. So I first met Mort Swanson in either 73 or 74, and he built the yielder drills, and you had one. Now, I think a lot of people listening to this don't have any idea what a yielder drill was like. And well, <laughs> how many rows were, there, were on the one? Uh, they were, it was the first one that I pulled was uh, uh, 12 feet wide, I think it was 12 feet. And it was the first one that they built that Mort, and well, I was there when they were building the thing, uh, I was pretty young. I was still doing other stuff in manufacturing and stuff, but I was really interested. And the neighbors were looking over the fence, and this is crazy. That's never going to work. But they took parts. They took a 95H final drives for the because you needed a big heavy axle. Well, there wasn't anything around, so they started with it. There was pieces that they could buy pretty cheap, and so they got 95 final drives and and big tires and. And then they took seed openers off of a John Deere deep furrow drill, and then they built their own boxes, and, and Mark figured out his own openers and everything, and he put this thing all together, and they had, well, you know, it was just a bunch of metal, and so they had different colors and everything, so they just had some caterpillar yellow paint around, so they just painted it <laughs> caterpillar yellow, and pretty soon we called it Old Yeller. Yep, that was the I name of the that. drill. And I pulled that drill in about, I think it was 75 or 76 or somewhere in there, must have been 76. And uh, um, anyway, so it, it evolved then. The next one came along was a Comfort King. They dropped the dry fertilizer on top of the ground. Well, it fertilized all the weeds and the cheat grass and everything else. Well, ah, that's no good. So then the next one came was a Pioneer Yielder. Right. And then uh, and they, they put it, they deep furrowed in, they, or not deep furrowed, they deep banded the fertilizer. Right. And they figured out paired row, you know, two rows. 515 spacing, and we did that for a few years. So you'd have two rows five inches apart, then yes. 15 inches. And 15 inches, we like call that. twin rows. We yeah, twin rows. You guys call it twin rows yeah. in the Midwest. We call it paired row, and actually, I don't know when the twin row got started, but paired row was, you know, that was way back there in the 70s. They started figuring that out. And they were working, we had some really neat people at WSU, uh, Bob Papendick, Keith Saxon, right. uh, some of these guys, U of I, these guys were just hanging over the, you know, Figuring, helping us figure this stuff out. And so uh, then the yielder came, well, that thing was like, well, it must have been 10 feet tall, you know, and they made it 20 feet wide. It was a 1520, was 20 feet wide, just a monster. Had great big uh, fertilizer, you know, bottles on the back, anhydrous bottles and rice tires and all kinds of, man, this thing it took a huge tractor to pull it. And, Oh man, it was a laughing stock, you know, until it started working. You know, then they wasn't so dumb, it wasn't so stupid after all. So this 20-foot drill, how much would it weigh? They were pretty oh, heavy. Oh man, oh yeah. Tons, right? 50,000 pounds, yeah. <laughs> maybe 55,000. And you can imagine, it was like, guys call it a boxcar. Yeah. It was this big. and, and I've, was, I've seen some of them. And it was, it was taller than a tractor. I mean, it was way yeah. up there. You had to have, uh, you know, hydraulic drill fills that would for bulking your seed you know and you had to have a put the hoist up and make the make the the, the hydraulic uh you know the auger had to 
going high. You couldn't just do it out of a, you know, a truck or something. You had to have a, something tall enough to get into those things. But uh, I owned one, a 13-foot one, in the in the early 90s, and then as things progressed, well, then we, you know, they were too little, 13 feet, 20 feet was too little, uh, too narrow, you know, because when you're farming, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 acres, it's too slow, and uh, uh, so um, so we got we got to going into air drills, starting that. I think the first air drill was, oh, I think around. 95 or something like that. What width would it be? Oh, they, it was at 36 feet. Okay, that's pretty small today. 30 feet, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, there's a lot of, some of these big drills, I pull a cross lot now that's 36 feet. It's a big drill, it has a lot, weighs a lot. How many rows would that be? 30? That, that'd be, uh, let's see, we pull 40. 40 Still rows. doing pair rows on that? Yes, it's uh, well, no, it's ten-inch spacing, okay. but actually, gotcha. because you have to, we don't want to be driving in front of an opener, so we have to kind of, kind of varies a little bit. So sometimes they're ten, and sometimes they're, they're less, and sometimes they're a little more. But they all canopy when it, when it's uh, uh, in harvest time. You, it's all solid. You know, you don't notice any of that. But, but the fertilizer on a, of course, on a, on a um, cross lot drill is, is way different. There's fertilizer on each row. And each row is independently hydraulic cylinders, and you know it's just high tech, and computers to run everything. And um, uh, whereas the the paired row on the yielder was all the same, they moved and things, but um, but the the uh, fertilizer was always in the center of the paired row. And we even had a drill that did triple row, and then we put the seed under the middle one. We put the uh, fertilizer under the middle they used row. They call that triple shoot, right? Yeah, well, the triple shoot would be a, you know, that'd be N and P and S. You know, you'd have maybe a pop-up in one of them, and they'd put that with the seed, and the other two would be down to the deep bend. So let's let's talk about wheat a little bit. Uh, here in the Midwest, we'd be happy with 70, 80 bushel wheat yield. Yeah. You that, wouldn't be happy with that's that. That's good. Well, I would be in the low rainfall area. It's amazing with no-till. We have so much more water. You know, 18 inches in the 50s, you probably end up with 10. All the rest of it ran down the road, ran down the ditch. Now we get 18 inches and it's in the ground. And so we have more water. And we have actually, uh, guys are noticing that it, water's coming up in the bottoms, that they never had water before. I mean, it's not too wet or anything like that, but there's just way more water. As our soil lays in layers, you know, and there's a blue clay layer in some of that silt loam area. And when that water hits the, and it's down quite deep, it's like, uh, well, I'm going to make a guess six, seven feet, and maybe eight feet. And uh, when I use my getting probe, I haven't really found that layer where I'm running the probe, but there are areas. And I think some of the hills, of course, a lot of acres, you don't know, you don't know unless you pull a core and, and have it assayed, you know, and right. figure out what it all is, you know, what's down there. But, <clears throat> you know, when you hit cleach, you know, there's that white. Mm -hmm. cleats, you know, and, that, and your water won't go through that either. And so a lot of times, but anyway, what'll happen is that it goes down and hits one of those cleats layers or it'll hit that blue clay and then it runs downhill, comes up in the bottom. So it's wet now, it never was wet before. And so not to the place in our area where you're farming and then it's too wet to farm. It's not like, does that up at Pullman, does that at Pullman and Genesee and those areas. But uh, in our area, we don't have those wet, wet areas. 
So up at Colfax, where, where is home for you? What kind of wheat yields would you get? We had this year was a phenomenal year. We had a really wet spring. We had a, we had a winter that was perfect for growing winter wheat. And we had a lot of wheat. We had 130. Wow. Uh, that's, that's as high as we've had. We've had 120. We've actually done some in some of our flats where we've raised corn. We had seven years of continuous corn. We first start, started doing this. This was like we started messing around with corn probably about 97, 98. And I'm going to guess after seven years, probably about 2005 or somewhere in there, we had seven years of continuous corn in this bottom. And, and I told my son, I said, let's put that back to wheat just for fun. Let's see what it does. We, were, we wanted to rotate it, but it just, it just, we were taking soil samples every year and, and making sure we weren't mining the soil and all that. We were putting it back. And so, and we always check for the residual so we don't have 300 pounds of residual or something that's not going on. We, we had 15 or 20 pounds. Yeah. Anyway, so we had seven years of corn. So we went back to winter wheat and I pulled out into the wheat at harvest, really good wheat. Well, I said, man, this stuff is really good. It's some of the best wheat I've ever seen. I don't know what it's going to do. Well, I pulled into it, and my monitor just <laughs> 200, 220. I said, wait, 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 hold it. You know, yeah. this, that's something the matter. Until I looked in the bulk tank. It was <laughs> almost full, and I had barely got started in the field. And I thought, my word, this is true. It is that good. So I just pulled back over to the beginning, filled the tank up, and just pulled over there. And I called up our local, one of the NRCS guys, Dennis Rowe. And I asked him what he was doing. He says, what do you need? I said, could you bring the scales in the, you know, the, the, the conservation district had portable scales, yeah. put it under the bank out. Cause I don't have a way, I don't have a bank out to, you know, like a, a way wagon. Right. And so brought them out and we cut a sample. I said, well, you know, how do we, how do we get a sample out of this thing? He said, well, you don't go down a corner, just go down, just run out there in the middle of that, go towards the center. And uh, when you get half full, turn around and come back. Anyway, we checked it all out, documented at 168. Wow. And it was true. And anyway, there was a, it was about a, well, I can't remember, 40 acres or something. And I think it, it was very close to 200 when we got done. So I couldn't tell that to anybody. They think you're lying, you know. <laughs> right. So it's a fish story, but it was true. We had it documented. And so, yes, but now we, we seem to be approaching some of those high yields now out of just the normal year. You know, when we get an extra, we get a right kind of a winter, we can raise the highest yields of winter wheat anywhere in the world. We, we hold a record in Whitman County. And I don't know what it was, what it averaged this year. It was high. It was county average. You know, county average, and a lot of times you'd be raising 70, 80 bushel wheat. County average might be 45. I think it's twice that now, this last year. It was really good. I give it to the extra moisture that we've got. Spring wheat now, if you, and you, here's the deal. If you go up into pulmonary where there's higher rainfall, they can raise 90 bushel spring wheat, uh, dark northern spring, but it'll only be 10 pro protein. Well, that doesn't work. So they can raise a high yield, but they don't get the protein too much water. So you gotta really pour it, you gotta uh, tissue test and all this stuff, and then you gotta add fertilizer at the, you know, different times and, and bring it up so you get your protein up. We also raise uh, hard red winter. We've been raising that for years. We raise more hard red winter wheat than we raise soft white wheat. So what would the hard winter, what would be the- Hard red is, is very close to soft white. Uh, we'll, raise, uh, we'll raise 80, 90 bushel 
in good years over his 80, 90 bushel, maybe over that. You know, it varies. We've got north sides and south sides. You know, when it's flat, it's all the same, but on a hill, you've got a north side, you've got a south side. Well, the south side is generally gets more heat, you know, and so sometimes it used to be that the south side would not be your best wheat because there was not as much moisture as on the north side, but then sometimes the north sides would freeze out, you know, because they wouldn't, it'd be cold over there, never get any sun. But uh, now, pretty much, it's just pretty much 80, 90 all over. You know, we can raise winter wheat and spring wheat all, all the same. We'll rejoin the conversation with Frank and John in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Ingersoll and Egger Solutions, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast series. Ingersoll specializes in seedbed solutions. Whatever seedbed challenges you have, Ingersoll can give you the right tools to get the job done. For more information, visit them at www.ingersolltillage.com. Now, before we get back to the conversation, Frank is going to share a little-known no-till farmer fact. And now for a little-known no-till farmer fact. When the Denver airport was built in the mid-1990s, regulations called for controlling blowing dust from a nearby farmland. And thanks to no-till, there was soon a big improvement in air quality. Since that time, for more than 30 years, most of the ground around Denver's International Airport which is located some 25 or 30 miles from downtown Denver, is no-tilled in order to keep the dust down. Now let's get back to our conversation with Frank and John Ashelman. Plus, stay tuned as Frank answers a listener question about the early days of no-till. So, years ago we had Dr. Cook come back and talk about Greenbridge. He's and, a plant pathologist. Oh yeah. And I think we've got a Greenbridge problem here in the Midwest and people don't understand it. I'm thinking the same thing and I don't know because when you start talking about seed into green, you know, that's in our country, that's a no, 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 no. For our Corn Belt people, define Greenbridge. Okay, Greenbridge. See the no-till, we, we didn't know what it was until we started no-tilling. And you cannot plant into, like for instance, you have volunteer wheat. You have volunteer weeds, you have volunteer whatever. And when we first started no-tilling, we didn't know any different. We just went out and seeded into that. We didn't till it, so we didn't kill any weeds. There was no glyphosate, and we didn't, no, 2,4-D won't kill it, won't kill grass, so we just went and seeded into it. Oh my goodness, we, we had diseases, we had all this, and see it doesn't work you guys, it doesn't work, no-till doesn't work. You got all those diseases out there, you know, in your, in your stubble and in all this stuff. Well, as it turns out, it was the volunteer wheat that was doing the most damage because the pathogen, you know, Rhizoctonia, Pythium, Cercosprel, all these different diseases, root diseases and all that stuff, they need a host. They, in other words, a host plant, that's through volunteer wheat out there. And so what we discovered was Dr. Cook, and oh, there was one other researcher there before, I can't say his name right now, he's passed away now, but figured out that what was happening was those little buggers, the, the, the pathogens were smart. They were on the host plant. Well, then we'd go out and we'd kill it with, with glyphosate. And if we didn't make sure that that plant was dead, dead, like three weeks, brown, dead. 
what he found out was that the pathogen, when that new plant came up and that little coleoptile stuck its nose out, the pathogen transferred right to the new plant. And the old plant died and the new plant was infected. So what you have to do is that, is, is that he discovered that two to three weeks, you gotta have them dead two to three weeks before you plant. And we try to do that. Now you can't always do it. But if, you, if you've had a really good program of, of getting everything dead before you plant it, you have very few pathogens. And I've got Tim Pollux, which you, who replaced Cook, and all these guys, they've come in. And we've done some of the longest no-tilling there's been in the area. And so they come to our field to see what's going on. And they've set up grid sampling and all kinds of stuff. And we have so little uh, pathogen issues out there, there's har hardly any. And it's been no-tilled for 45 years, you know, over 40. And so the only, the only thing that I know is, is we've been just real bears on making sure everything was dead before we planted into it. And consequently, I think, and their, their research has proven that that works. So you were a founder of the Pacific Northwest Direct Seeding Association. Yes. You guys call it direct seeding a lot. Yeah, we call it direct seeding because, um, yeah, it was, we, we changed the name of it because we had some issues when we first started. There were some things that were done, continuous cropping and end up all cheatgrass. And so it left a really bad uh, reputation before glyphosate was discovered and built. So we call it direct seed. And um, there was about, uh, I was one of the original members of it that was on the first board. And Dr. Cook was there. He helped us. And he was our, he was an, our advisor. And we now have, um, we now have um, uh, members of both universities that sit on the board. Mm -hmm. And it's really neat because uh, you get all that input and information. So you stay on track, really. I mean, as far as the latest of everything, you know, you've got them sitting around right. the board. And then they, are, they like that too because we're out there, we're kind of the innovators. We're out there doing stuff that nobody's done and they want to be there on the, on the first, first floor. And that puts them there so they can, we can just interact with each other. We formed it and uh, I think it was like, must have been around 99, 2000. But I was uh, one of the original ones. There was about, uh, when we first started, I, I think there was like probably 40 of us, you know, started the thing. I mean, there was a board, we, we right, elected sure. a board. Uh, there was uh, eight or 10 on the board from three different states. And it's still that way. We make sure there's representatives from each state. And then we work together um, and we have a conference every year. Now it's around, I think they're around, I haven't got the latest numbers, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess uh, four to 500 every year now are coming. And uh, lots of interest. A lot of holdouts, you know, some of them still don't think it works. I mean, a lot of, some of the farmers, but it's, it's becoming a more acceptable thing. And, uh, but uh, for those that are in it, um, you know, there isn't any other way to do it. It's, it's the only answer. It's just, it's better and better and better. One of the, one of the early day members was John McNabb, who's yes. spoken at our national no-tillage yes. conference a few times, and he was a yielder user. Yeah, yeah. Too. Yeah, John was, I got him. In fact, I've known John for years and years, and uh, a lot of those original yielder guys, because I became one of them anyway, so I got him, uh, talked him into coming and serving on the board of the PNDSA, and he's, I think he's still there. He's, yeah, I think uh, so. He's uh, done it, yeah, and there were some 
some others there that were, you know, original guys from that. And another one we've had here a couple times from the other state, Oregon's Tim Melville. Oh yeah, Tim was one of the. He was another yielder. Guy. Yeah, he's a yielder guy. Yeah, yeah, I've known. Tim. I've been to his place. Yes, I've um, known him, known him for years. Of course, we we were all there at the same time, uh, working with uh, Guy Swanson with his group. He had a really advanced. Uh, no-till session, you know, during every almost every winter, even before. Well, there's the you know the steep uh, program that the universities mm -hmm. put out was way back there. I should get my dates together, but and Swanson was actually uh, doing some of that stuff. Um, I think he was even before the steep program started. But anyway, we were doing both, and then finally we decided we need to have a an organization, you know, to, to bring this thing along. And then we started the Direct yeah. Seed Association. Now it's going good. I'm really happy for it because um, it's, it's really a good deal to help people get into it. My wife for Christmas got me a copy of Carl Cupper's book, Shepherd, oh, yes. Shepherd Grain. So you, you remember Shepherd Grain, right? Yes, yeah. So explain this to me. <clears throat> well, there was a bunch of us. Farmers all the time have talked like, this is crazy. Here we are going to all this. We're, we've got such a sustainable farming practice, and yet we haul it to the commercial elevator and dump it in with everybody that's plowing and doing all this other stuff. And we thought, this stuff's got to be better than what these other, that, what we used to do. And so decided, you know, led by Carl and Fred Fleming, and I think there were six or six of us, or seven of us maybe, that started that thing. Another speaker we've had is Russ Zenner, who was yeah, Russ. in that too. Yeah, and he's in it too. And he was on the original okay. board of the PNDSA also, yes. And um, so a bunch of us just got together and, and just shot from the hip again, one of those innovation <laughs> things. You know, you, you see the old movies and you see the, the, the hot dog and you shoot holes through silver bullets, yeah. you know, or through silver dollars. You know, I, I couldn't hit a five gallon bucket up there, but they hit right. dollars, you know. Anyway, that's what you call shooting from the hip. So we just got together and it was a long haul figuring this out. But originally what we, what we have now is we have a group of innovators that are raising, we're IPing the grain, we're identity preserving it. We have our own home storage or else the guys that don't have a bin at the local co-op, it's theirs. We keep the wheat all separate. We have uh, some of our buyers even sit on the board we're totally transparent. We have a cost of production thing that's been worked out by the university uh, economists. We all have to fill one out every year and show everything. We show our financial statements, all this stuff, our cost of production things. We, get, we show them to some of the buyer representatives, some of the bakers and some mm -hmm. of the different companies. Uh, Grand Central and Portland, you know, they're using it. We have, we're, we're feeding the, the flour, we're feeding it into the I-5 corridor. Uh, so basically Seattle, Portland, you know, LA, we're feeding all that area. Um, anyway, I'm gonna get ahead of myself here, but anyway, so um, then we, we raise, uh, we have specific varieties that we raise. It's milling quality, we're after milling quality. Okay, you guys, the bakers, what do you guys want? What, do you, what, what works? We have them come to a big commercial kitchen. And we have all these different varieties. Every new variety, we've even got the breeders are breeding it. Kimmy Kidwell, one of the ones that was, she's a world-class uh, spring wheat breeder. She's not there at the university anymore, but uh, there was a variety she developed, was called Terra. We still raise it. 
and it, it's some of the best high protein dark northern spring wheat there is. It was bred specifically to be used in milling and it's a WSU variety and we sell it back to them in flour for the food services on the campus. Mm -hmm. So it started there and it's going all the way around and goes back to them. They're using it. Yeah, I read that. That was in Carl's book. I yeah, yeah. That, yeah. It's pretty neat. And of course, we that are in that, we just love it because now we actually connect with our buyer. We used to just dump it in a thing and it went to the Pacific Rim. These guys are local. These guys are in Seattle. We, we uh, rent buses load them up on buses. We say, we're going to do a tour, you guys. If you want to come, we'll come on to the farm. We'll show you what we're doing. And they come on busloads, put them in our fields, run them through our farms, tell them what we do, show them the equipment. Then, of course, they're clueless. They don't know what they've ever been on a farm, a lot of them. And uh, so, uh, and of course, we're clueless when it comes to baking. So then we turn around and we go back to them and they give us tours of how they work. It's amazing what they do. And then the same way with the mills you know, how they mill flour. It's amazing. It's been so successful that we've become a big portion of the Centennial Milling, the old Centennial Mill in Spokane. Um, and that's another long story, but uh, it's a success story that's uh, growing. And of course, uh, what we're doing is we've got to build, we've got to build the brand bigger so that more farmers can come in. We would let as many in as we want, but we have very strict code for qualifying. You have to pass uh, food Alliance inspection, the Food Alliance, which is out of Portland, third-party verifier. They have a list of, you know, a book of stuff you got to fill out. you got to pass all these inspections, and they look at everything. They look at what you're paying your people and how you treat them and, you know, what kind of chemicals you're using, everything. And how much and what are you doing, how you're storing them, all, everything. And what's your rotation and, and all that stuff. And then when you pass that, then you can sell your flour with their seal. Well, all the people that buy know what that seal means. Right. And so we're just like, and they, they love it because they come, uh, there's a number on a shepherd's grain bag of flour that has a number, and you can take that number, go on shepherdsgrain.com, put that number, and it'll tell you what field it came from, and there'll be a picture. If it comes from my field, there's my resume there, picture of me and my family, and a picture of the field, you know, and, but we can, I could take you to the field that that wheat came from. Right. So what percentage of your wheat would be marketed through Shepherd? I uh, it's that. small. Each one of us is small, but the thing is you can't have just a few farmers supplying a huge demand because right. if something happens, exactly. how, what are you going to use to fill the demand? So we have a lot of farmers, each one supplying a little bit. And it's in three states. So if we have a trouble in Washington, we can get it out of Oregon. Or if it's a trouble in Oregon, we get it out of Idaho or whatever. So it kind of protects us that way. And so my, probably my percentage, I haven't even figured that out, but it's, it's less than probably 15%, probably like 15, maybe 20%. So you got any idea how much value added you're getting per bushel by doing yes, this? Yes, it depends. And then we, go, we all run off of a cost of production sheet. You know, we have to all fill this out. And so, and it's running average. And we, another thing we do, we price it uh, for six months so that the, the baker knows exactly what he, he can bid his, you know, like we were doing the Starbucks in LA, a bakery that was supplying all the stuff. Well, they got to bid that stuff and they got to, right. they got to know what their costs are way out. And so we guaranteed them the price for six months. We change it twice a year. 
we do a cost of production, and then we, it's a carried forward. Then the next year we have another cost of production, so we go up or down according to what it cost us. Right now it's pretty high because the way it ran through all the years, we sold it for less money for so many, and then pretty soon uh, the, we had the weather and things, and there was a shortage, and so then the price went up. And it costs us more, and so it takes a while. It kind of levels you, you. You level the mountains off, you right. know. Well, I hate to see a number. I don't know if I want to broadcast that, but it's <laughs> it's pretty high. Good. I mean, it's like, um, well, some years it's just you know a few, uh, you know, a few percents. You know, right. other years like like the last few years, it's been like thirty or forty percent higher. Than, percent than, or than, percent or cents. Well, percent. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, and it was really, really good. But of course, we could sell, we could raise way more than we can sell right now because our, we've put extra salesmen on it. Sure. And that's another thing. ADM doesn't sell, and neither do the Food Service of America or Cisco or some of these that do distributing mm -hmm. to these restaurants and and bakeries. We have to do that, and so we've been limited. To, our salespeople, but and then the other thing is, really, it's as hard as farmers to get into. Yeah, Carl was telling us in his book where you get this baker lined up to take your flour, but you got to get his distributor or wholesaler to handle the product. Yeah, and of course the wholesaler says, "There's no way you can tell your customer what your costs are." Right. ADM exactly. says, "You can't do that." Yeah. And then well, we're doing it anyway right. because they have to trust us. There is a big gap in what's believable and they don't trust anybody and neither right. do we we're like that uh, you know with our fertilizer costs we're like that with a lot of things we're, we're like that with the price of our wheat uh, we want to know well how come it's how come we're not getting more how what are you guys getting you know well we told them and they love it yeah. and they say you can't operate on 10 percent margin well we'll we'll charge him 20 or 30 if you'd rather <laughs> And they, they said, well, no, we don't do that, but there's no way. And they, they pay us whatever we ask yeah. because they trust us and yeah. we trust them. And uh, it's, a, it's a really neat. And here's the other thing. It's a superior product. It really is. It's kind of like, um, I don't know if you ever tasted European coffee, you know, like in Switzerland. I've been mm -hmm, back sure. here two or three times. That's where our family comes from. Man, it's smooth. And it's the best coffee. Kona coffee from Hawaii, best coffee in the world. You know why? Because it's one variety coming from one place, and they have all the things figured out. And it's, and in the U.S., you know, number one coffee beans, uh, you can have uh, so much percent filler beans. They right. can come from anywhere and nothing. And that's what makes it bitter, and that's what makes it. Well, Shepherd's Green is verified, certain varieties, identity preserved, no mixing. And it comes out perfect every time. And what's happening is, the bakers tell us, we get more bread from your flour than we get from your competition. We get more value. We get, it's not only tastes better, but we get more loaves. Right. I don't know how else to, you know, I don't know how many loaves they get from a 50 pound bag of flour, uh, you know, of, of, the, of the competition or of ours, but they're saying they get more. So it's actually cheaper for them to use it because they get more out of it. Yeah. It's kind of like a certain gas might give you, you know, 20 miles a gallon more. Well, you're going to use it. Even if it costs you more, it's still cheaper. Right. Well, John, I think we need to wrap this up. Okay. I think this has been fascinating. Our Midwest uh, people and around the world are going to say, wow, we didn't know anybody could produce 165 bushel wheat. 
in some years. Yeah. Congratulations on doing it. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's some years now. That's not right, all the I time. Right, I know, I know. But you do everything right, and you have the right kind of weather. You know, we can do a lot of things out there. But, you know, the good Lord is the one who makes it work. Right, you know, exactly. he, he supplies. We don't get rain. We're in big trouble. Right. We don't get sun. We're in big trouble. If right. it freezes out, we're, you know, it's... Right. We, we have a very small part of it. We do everything right. as best we can. We're good stewards of what we do, and we want to pass it on in better shape. But okay. the good Lord's the one that makes it all work. Right. So, thank you. You bet. And now, Frank will share a listener email about the early days of no-till. How many people in the United States are really no-tilling? Well, this is data that's kind of old, and there'll be new census data coming uh, by the spring of 2019. But back in the early uh, years of 2009, 2010, there were about 48% of the farmers in the United States who tilled every year. 21% of farmers were using no-till in all four years, so that would be continuous no-till, while another 31% used no-till along with minimum tillage or conventional tillage in one out of the three years. So interest in no-till is still growing, but we got a long ways to go to get people to continuously no-till. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and John Ashelman for sharing these stories and memories about no-tilling in Washington State. Similar stories can also be found in Frank's book, From Maverick to Mainstream, which is available at notillfarmer.com forward slash notillmaverick. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Ingersoll and AgriSolutions, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on the iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.